Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tractable. I'm your host, Shitesh, CTO at Orb. And today I have with me David, who is the CTO at Sentry. Uh, Sentry is an error monitoring and performance monitoring tool that probably every developer on the internet has heard of uh, with customers like Sonos and GitHub and Reddit and some 90,000 more. So really excited to, to dive in with David. David, welcome to the podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into the, the technical details of Sentry, I'd love to just hear a little bit about the origin story of Sentry in your words. Obviously, you've been working on Sentry for a while. How did it come to be? And, and give, us, give us the kind of playback of the last decade or so. Yeah, so, I mean, Sentry is super old at this point. We started it, in, or rather, I started it, in, I think, 2008. Um, open source project, dashboard for errors is basically how you can think about it. And from there, I want to say it took on a little bit of a life of its own. I, I think useful things get adoption. And we saw some of that where people wanted what, what it meant built. And I'm the kind of persona that if there's adoption, I actually want to work on it. It's like a motivating factor for me. And so packed on it on the side for a few years and then eventually started the business. We bootstrapped that, raised some money, hired a bunch of people and have been continuing to kind of grow it out from, from there. But fundamentally, it's very similar to what it was when we started the project. It's still a dashboard of your errors. We have some other products now, of course. It's a really simplistic idea, I guess. Yeah, that's, it's interesting that it's very easy to describe the product, especially to a developer who has to deal with errors. Do, do you think there's anything about the positioning of the product or the meat of the product that has really changed in that time or, or anything where you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm surprised that we started going into this territory Whereas before I was just thinking it would maybe be a simpler product or just be dashboard of errors. Yeah, I think when we, when we raised, very different industry when we raised our funding, which was 2015. And I didn't have a lot of conviction that errors, like error monitoring as a product category was enough to build like a $100 million recurring mm -hmm. revenue business, which is how right. you need to think about venture, right? And so we're like immediately we're like, well, we have to build more with, it's going to be this and then something else, which is probably performance monitoring. And we basically just took the idea of like, we mess things up a lot in production. Let's just build more tools for us to help us resolve those issues. Kind of in the same guise as uh, what Sentry did because the, the bread and butter of the core product experience was just, there's an error, it's in your inbox, all the details there. It kind of took away this like frustration of you didn't know what's going on, you didn't know how to debug it. And we're like, well, there's a lot more problems that we could probably apply that same formula to. I think the, the surprising thing over the years was one, the core product and what most people pay for is actually still... It, it's obviously different, but it's mostly mm -hmm. the same thing at like a surface level, right? We expanded to like new audiences, so like new technology frameworks and things like that. But I think something like 80% of our revenue comes from error monitoring, which yeah. I would not have believed if you told me, you know, 2015 that that was possible. So I guess that's cool. But but yeah, nothing overly surprising. I, I think we're still figuring out product two, three, four, five, and, and really yeah. knows this is something that we're proud of, but otherwise the core has done really well. Yeah, so you, you've obviously had a, large part in building the core of Sentry. One thing I was curious to dig into is it's easy to describe, but I imagine there are a lot of very tricky technical challenges, especially as you go from, you know, adopting it from a few teams to tens of thousands of teams. So, so what do you think are the, the kind of trickiest technical challenges you've had to, to architect around or kind of push on over the years? Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you look at the bread and butter of Sentry, the goal is instrument every application whenever there's an error, sort of process that, make it human readable, do whatever needs to happen to make it so you can consume that really quickly and then decide if you need to notify somebody or not, right? And 
the interesting aspect, I mean, there's two fundamental things that are hard about that problem. One, how do you do this in every technology? But it's not a hard problem. It's just a tedious problem for the most part. And so it's just like constant, write more code, write new language, deal with new framework over and over and over. Yeah. So it's not a fun problem, but it's an easy problem, right? The other problem, which I wouldn't say is a hard problem, but maybe you wouldn't expect it early on, is one of the biggest challenges of Century is dealing with massive spikes of inbound errors. And mm -hmm. like and mm -hmm. This actually gets worse as we add more products. And so for a long period of time, Century's fundamental goal was, how do you just handle like denial of service nonstop? Like somebody's going to have a big outage. They're going to send us all the errors. We can throw them away. That's great. Like the data yeah. loss is not a problem, but we need to stay online. And ideally, it only impacts that customer that say we're delaying their, their, their data or something like that. And so I, a good analogy, actually, if I, I assume Gmail still does this, but back in the day, actually with Sentry, we flooded our inboxes because we took down the site and we were sending ourselves uh, actually, mm. this might not have been essentially, this might have been something else, but we were flooding ourselves with error emails, basically. It was like an, an email per error or something. And what Gmail does is it basically delays all inbound at that point. It, it basically makes your email unusable. It's not fun. But no other customer gets affected. Like, it doesn't delay your inbox because I flooded my inbox, right? Right. So Sentry has that same problem. And uh, that took us a lot of time for how do we really optimize things so it really handles a lot of traffic pretty smoothly. How do we optimize things so when, especially when there's a repetitive concern, that's pretty tight to manage. And like I said, it's not as hard as it might sound. There's actually a lot of easy technologies to approach these problems with. But what it meant over time was like, we just built up many layers of a firewall. So there's an IP level, like, like your IP tables firewall level, that's like the cheapest version to remove data from the system, but also yeah. the least flexible and accurate and things like that. And then we just have a few more of those. And so it's just a lot of dealing with things like that, which let me tell you is not fun when it's your yeah. project because you're just on call 24-7 and you're also getting paid all the time. Yeah. This kind of thing. Well, one question I have about that is how do you think about the different use cases of error monitoring? So, you know, you, you could imagine some people are totally okay with losing a bunch of errors because they know there's a big outage and, you know, they don't need to see all those errors in, in Sentry, whereas some people it's possible want like a pretty precise count of how many occurrences of this error were there, even in the presence of a big spike. So is that like an architecture level trade-off versus, you know, a, a customer by customer sort of give people as much configurability as they want so that they can, you know, in, in some sense, get the experience they want out of the product? Yeah, it turns out configurability is like one of the worst things that can exist in self. <laughs> Early days century, what we do is like you have errors come in, we would yeah. fingerprint them, basically like hash the stack trace. And then if we had seen it a lot, we would just throw them in the trash can, right? So an analogy here is like maybe the first 100 errors, we captured all of them for the first 100 like instances of an error, right? And then the next 100, maybe we only captured 10 of them or something like yeah. that. And it, it, and it amounted to something like if there were a million copies of the same error, we might only store a thousand, which is awesome, yeah. right? When you think about, flexibility. There's some challenges with that because what you don't care about is the duplicate information in error, but you do care about all the unique information. So you care about things like which browser was it happening on? If there's like a mm -hmm. large variance of browsers, you actually need that, that metric effectively. And yeah. so we had to build abstractions and kind of make that cheap. And then over the years, we found there were more and more versions of that. Well, I want to answer this kind of specific question about this error that would require me to have a lot more data than what's been sort of denormalized already. And so yeah. over time, we went from this sort of sampling algorithm to we're just going to store everything. We're kind of charging mm -hmm. for that anyways, which is where configurability can't work. And it was kind of fine. And, and, and what I mean by that is like, 
if you imagine we're trying to like operate on margins or something, because Century doesn't do value-based pricing, we effectively do cost-based pricing. And so mm-hmm. cost us a dollar for something, we charge you $9. I don't know. I'm not sure the math on hand. That's the goal that was is something like significant from a margin point of view, because if people don't know how this works, you got to pay for engineers. And what you're paying for is the continued development, not just the maintainability of software, right? If I'm telling you it's a dollar per error and you're like, well, I want you to store less of those, but I still want you to process all of them. I'm like, well, how much does that cost us? And all of a sudden you're in this complicated scenario where it's like, I don't want to deal with these problems, you know? And so we just decided to make it all the same. And and here we are storing lots and lots of data. Yeah. And and it's interesting you say you don't do value-based pricing. Instead, you you kind of do cost-based pricing. I I imagine the... It is very, very hard to build up the same level of product experience that Sentry has built, even if you could store all the errors, right? I mean, you all have an alerting product, you, you, even just the ability to group and filter by dimension, like like all those product capabilities, you know, have taken years of R&D. So is that a conversation you have with folks who maybe you're on the phone with trying to get to adopt Sentry? Or is it just like pretty obvious because so much of the product has already been used by developers that people know like, yeah, there's no way I want to build this. And, and that category has just formed, especially over the last, I'm guessing, five, seven years. Yeah, I, I don't think we have as much of a problem these days about like, should I build my own? Yeah, There's a question on, do I need something like Sentry versus just logs? And that, that question has persisted forever. Interesting. Less and less common because it's like, yeah, if you have a problem in production, it's like, does it matter to you? What matters mm-hmm. to us because we ship changes all the time. So we're breaking things all the time. So we need to be able to fix it. Right. And that's, that's the status quo in tech. But yeah. Not everybody operates that way. So they're like, yeah, if there's a problem, we'll just figure it out or we'll just go dig in the logs and it's fine if it's harder or something. That's yeah. fine for some people. Our sort of pitch has always been, and I, I actually still believe this to be the truth. Like I have a side project. I just run Sentry on it. I actually, I don't have Datadog or metrics or any of these random things. And honestly, if, yeah. and I run on GCP often and I'm like, if I have to go dig in GCP's logs, and I, I, I'm not saying GCP's good at this, to be fair, they're not. But if I had to go dig in logs or something, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, all of my problems are errors or something. They should show up in Century. I'm not at a scale where I should have other, like, contrived problems and I need something else. And that's yeah. a very big value prop, right, at the end of the day. And, and sort of Century's whole belief over a long period of time was, we will be, get, be able to solve more and more needs of businesses. And so over yeah. time, we'll be able to actually grow sort of more alongside a business versus trying to play catch up to what their needs might be. And that, that works out pretty okay, I would say. And, and that philosophy, I think, is actually very, very different. You know, if you look at something like Datadog, they have a huge product suite. So, you know, obviously Sentry has multiple products, but Datadog has 30 products or 40 products, right? Do you think that is just a reflection of them being dragged into different markets and, you know, some, some business fundamental thing? Or do you think that is a different stance on where they think instrumentation should go and, and like some technical philosophy stance. Yeah, I mean, I obviously can't really speak for them, but I think there's some mechanics that are kind of standard in businesses, right? There are different modes of operation, first off. Like some people choose, they want to build a thing, right? And then they'll figure mm-hmm. out how to get an adoption. Other people are like, tell me what you want, customer. I'm just going to build that and sell it to you. Yeah. That latter thing, I think, is what almost everybody does. And it's probably significantly easier as a business. We don't do that. We say, like, yeah. what do we think is interesting to build? We're going to build that. We're going to have a, a thesis behind like, yeah, there are customers that want it. It's valuable. And usually that starts with it's valuable to us. But th- that, that latter point, I think, also becomes, as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, it's hard to just do like pure R&D, right? Like you are dealing with demands of the market at the end of the yeah. day. And Datadog is very, very, very big. And you look a lot at what they build. And it's not very exciting 
the most part, just yeah. like AWS or GCP or any of these big enterprises, they build a lot of really boring checkboxes. They're not innovative. They're not doing anything different than they ever did before. They're just like helping pick the most unexciting corporate logo you can think of. They're helping those companies consolidate on a mediocre product experience, right? Yeah. And that's fine. It is what it is. We try to avoid anything that looks like a checkbox. And I, I think the other thing is, at least in our market, there's this like confusing situation that's always existed where monitoring is infrastructure. It's like mm-hmm. the, the IT team that's running the, the production infrastructures in charge of monitoring everything. Mm-hmm. And if you look at every tool that's kind of existed outside of Century or sort of some of these newer ideas, they're always just like, here's my logs, here's my metrics, here's my dashboards. It's always the same damn thing over and over. And they're never yeah, actually yeah. connected to like what we do, which is just change the code over and over. And so yeah. we kind of took the stance of like, that is systems monitoring. And that's an important industry. Mm-hmm. That industry has plateaued because at the end of the day, there are more and more people writing the business logic, less mm-hmm. and less net new people writing sort of the platform layer. Mm-hmm. People, I, like, I don't monitor disk failures. Right, GCP right. monitors disk. Exactly. Right? I no longer yeah. have those problems, right? And so yeah. our sort of belief is that wave continues and we continue to sort of abstract these low-level problems. But if that's true, then there needs to be technology that helps you actually monitor more of the business logic, the, the application mm-hmm. code, and focus on those problems, third-party vendors that you're using those problems rather than underlying hardware problems or something like that. And so... So that, that's kind of been our approach. And that's why our air monitor is so coupled to like the stack trace has to be really enriched. It has to be service oriented. We don't care about CPU and memory. They're just not good tools in this kind of yeah. problem space. And that's almost how, like, how we think about the differentiation of things. And so it, would it be accurate to say that Sentry is much more closely coupled to the product engineer, whereas you know an infrastructure monitoring tool more generically would be for, as you were saying, the platform team, or, or maybe even there's a stronger thesis there of, that's going to just be less and less required as AWS or GCP build higher order abstractions where, you know, you don't have to have like infrastructure instance monitoring if you're using Lambda, right? Because that's kind of just been abstracted away from you. Yeah, and that's the fundamental belief. Whether you agree or not with serverless, the concept of outsourcing the platform has always, like Heroku started the big wave here in my opinion. Maybe not Heroku started it, but they were the big name at the time. We still want the same thing. Like, I don't want to run any of this stuff. I spent the last two days fighting with GCP for my side project, just like make it not cost a couple hundred dollars a month, you know? All I want to do is deploy some application images, have a database that exists, have it all securely managed for me, and that's it, right? And that should yeah. get cheaper and more efficient over time. I don't think cloud, cloud vendors are doing that, of course, but you see all the past investment these days, like Vercel, Render, Fly, like yeah. Railway. There, there's so many of them. And so the demand is still there. And you, we bet on that demand. We bet that exactly what we want is the truth. Nobody wants to run that shit. Yeah. Why do you think it is, and, and maybe this is a tangent from Sentry specifically, but why do you think it is that the experience of deploying code doesn't feel like it's gotten simpler? Or, or maybe you disagree, but you know, there is clearly demand for things to be simple. Obviously, Sentry has a very simple instrumentation experience in large part across lots of different environments. But you're still having to deal with deploying containers and you're still having to deal with observability issues. And yeah, it, it doesn't feel like we've made that much headway. Yeah. I think, I don't know, there's, there's like two sides of this, right? Big tech has gotten more complicated. And so Century needs something like GCP to fully outsource the systems layer, but we're building our own platform on top. Of yeah. It, right? That's fine. And to do that and to deal with customers like Century, you do actually need at least some degree of complexity in it, or uh, available complexity, I guess. 
Well, the reality is that's where the money is, right? It's servicing customers like Century, not servicing my side project, at least for cloud vendors. And so I just don't think they're incentivized and or they're just not good at simplicity because they've tried, of course. Like you, you've seen, at least I'm not familiar as much with AWS, but like you had App Engine and all this stuff from Google that tried. Um, yeah. And so I think that that's like one challenge of it. I think there is, there is a truth that technology has gotten more complex for two reasons, I think. One, we're trying to do things that we didn't do before. And so that I think that's richer sort of more native feeling responsive applications. And that there's inherent complexity to do that mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. I've got a web server and it just returns HTML. And so, okay, a right. little bit of complexity there. I think there's also just a lot of complexity in the scale of the internet and all this stuff has got, it's different, you know, that actually doesn't impact most people, which is odd because the complexity is still there no matter what. But I think the, the if I just had to put my finger on it, in my opinion, it's like everything is more complex because some things are more complex, which is not a yeah. good outcome to be fair. but. But it is, you, yeah, it is difficult these days. Do, do you think it's possible that part of it is, and I think you were getting at this, you know, Sentry has, let's say, 90,000 customers, whereas most of these infrastructure providers or infrastructure tools, I'm guessing a lot of them start with some, some very big customers who have very complex requirements because that's where the money is to begin. And so you end up with a roadmap that's largely driven by that complexity rather than a very opinionated kind of product forward, almost consumer looking product, because I imagine Sentry is not really beholden to one big customer that's driving a checkbox set of features, right? Yeah. And that's very much true. Like, and I actually hate when we, we have a few like significant customers. I, I'm not happy about that generally speaking, because <laughs> it's fine that we have them, but I will not allow anybody to like cater to them in the sense of like, mm. what we do has to operate on the many. And that's a very difficult problem. But I, I think one, it's a lot easier to build something when you ask somebody what they want and you just give them that result. Right? Yeah. And that's what most successful companies do. Very hard to build something when you're kind of going after like a long tail market share kind of play where ACVs have to be lower, like more consumer apps, right? And I think it's harder because you often don't have the patience or yeah. you don't have the financial capability to be patient, you know? And yeah. I always tell people, because like one of, one of, I think the greatest strengths we had when we started the, everything and still today is like, we're just like, we're going to do something that we believe in and we're going to do it whatever way we think we is the most interesting or relevant to us. We're not going to do whatever way it seems easiest or status quo or anything like this. And so it was always like, we want to do market share. We want to have like, as part of that, like the low price point, we want to have it like self-hosted for free and open source with a big asterisk on it and things like that. And those are not the straightforward decisions of building a successful business. Those are like, why would you choose all these like weird branches to make things more difficult along the way? Yeah. And I don't think people often, one, are willing to take those sort of call it risks, if you will. I don't see it that way. But, and two, I just don't think people have a strong enough opinion about what the problem is they're solving in many cases. Yeah. Why, why do you think, or maybe what gave you the patience 10, 15 years ago to say, we're not going to, you know, go and try to get a few million dollar deals and build a roadmap on them? Like, is, is it that you just think you had a very clear idea of what error monitoring or, or just business logic monitoring, let's call it, should look like? Or is it just like, you know, you weren't interested in it for the monetization business aspect and, you know, generally, genuinely is a side project that you wanted to productionize and give to other developers? Yeah, I think... It's interesting because by the time we were venture funded, we had a couple thousand paid accounts making money. Not a lot. Our ACV was, must have been like $300 or something, something terrible, right? 
Yeah. And there's a real challenge. You cannot do enterprise sales and do bottoms up at the same time. I just, I don't think it's possible. Yeah. You often see enterprise companies try to like now switch and add bottoms up and they all fail at it. Like nobody's ever pulled it off as far as I understand. And it's because you've got all these million dollar plus deals over here. How are you going to justify optimizing mm -hmm. these, you know, $30 a month, $100 a month things, right? And this is the mm -hmm. same problem you see with cloud providers often, right? And that's a, you've got to be, you've got to have like top down strategic belief in the model, right? It's not a, yeah. you can't just react financially, otherwise it's not going to work. And so we were always like, there was no way for us to sell a seven figure deal once upon a time. It just didn't exist, yeah. right? It's like, we can't charge enough money for errors. And, yeah. and so we knew we, we needed more products to raise ACB over a long period of time. And these days, it's still hard for us to charge seven figures just for air monitor. It's doable, but it's still very, very rare and difficult. And yeah. that's fine. You know, we just accept that that's not the business we're in for the most part. And then we just focus on what the business is, you know? And I, I yeah. think it's fine, but it, it's a very different thing. You, I, I think it's just you got to decide. One's probably easier than the other. I think seven figures is still hard, to be fair. But like 10, 20, 30, 40K deals early on. Like, here's a, here's a good analogy. We had a Delta Airlines was an early self-serve customer. I, I don't mm -hmm. know exactly what or how. I just know they had an account. They're spending $29 a month. They would not expand ever. They didn't have the usage to expand. It was probably some internal R&D team doing who right. knows what, right? That's okay. It's not fun when you're in sales and you see that because you're like, oh, yeah. it's an enterprise logo. I should be able to commercialize that. And the fact yeah. is you just can't because adoption creates commercialization. And unless they're willing to and have a need to adopt it somewhere else where there is just that usage of it that is like consumer scale, we're just not yeah. going to monetize it well. And that's just... That's a hard thing to come to grips with because you can't manipulate growth then from a traditional field sales model. It's got to be much more true product-led. And I mean, the other thing that is kind of complicating things, obviously, is Sentry has this open source model, which, which I think has been a mixed bag for the industry at large. But how has that played into this commercialization conversation? And, and how do you think about you know, big companies who maybe have a pretty big use case just going and saying, we're going to use the open source software. Yeah, I, I think the way I always talk about this is Century is open source or was open source. We're pretty close to it, but just quick aside, Century has two models. A lot of our stuff's open source, true open source, free. And our core repo is open source after two years, but it's a license that allows you to non-commercially utilize it effectively. Mm -hmm. So you can just run it yourself, no strings attached, same code we run in prod. And so... We used to be full open source. And that, again, this is only because we want to do business this way. We think it's a better path forward from an industry as a whole. And people would often ask like, well, how do you monetize open source, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to ignore all of that because the answer is it's not related. Open okay. source is effectively a distribution model. And so you got to think of that open source as marketing. And the way we always got value of open source is we would help these customers. They would contribute back once in a while, but not a lot. At the end of the day, it was mostly us building the software. Right, But the best story I have from early on is Uber was a really big user of Sentry. They had a, the biggest installation, bigger than our SaaS service. They had an installation inside of Uber. They're self-hosting all this stuff. And when, when we venture funded, we're like, oh, this is going to be easy. We're just going to convert Uber and Airbnb and all these people that were just like running like free open source, right? Uh, spoiler, we didn't convert any of them. But Uber is a good one because we actually did charge Uber at some point. Mm. Significant amount of money for the scale we were at. It was a six-figure deal, but it was for like customer support and what might as well be you know, consulting or professional services. Right. And very quickly, we're like, this sucks. We don't want to do this. It's a distraction. And we did not renew the contract. And we were like, we just kind of like said, well, I don't think we can convert Uber. And, and a couple of years later, we realized it didn't matter because what we saw was all these companies like Uber 
eventually they came to the SaaS service, but they didn't come from Uber in the sense of Uber mm. never signed up. But all those employees or a lot of employees would move on to other, you know, roles at different companies. And they'd be like, oh yeah, I used Century at Uber. It was great. Also, there's a SaaS service. It costs us like 30 bucks to set up. And that was, yeah. that was phenomenal for us. And so that's where I go back to the distribution model. It's marketing at the end of the day. There's obviously other benefits of open source, but I think from a business point of view, that's such a big deal. And, and I think it's very hard to believe that anybody is ever going to win again in the sort of IT infrastructure space against an open source player that builds AAA product. And yeah. I, I wholeheartedly have that belief at this point. It may not be universally true yet. And again, it still matters. It's, it's got to be like tomatoes to tomatoes kind of thing comparison. It can't be like, here's a mediocre bad product that's open source. <laughs> like yeah. a phenomenal product that's proprietary. But yeah. same, same playing level, like open source is going to win because it just provides all these great benefits and, and beliefs. And, and it's almost like it, it's, it's a culture you're buying into, right? Yeah. And I think people underappreciate that idea of open source. And that it comes closely, like the last like sort of fork in that I want to uh, go into is, Open source is effectively, for us, the way we think about it is brand marketing. It's not just marketing or distribution. And what I mean by that is I, I loved it, especially internally at Century these days. I talk a lot about brand marketing and brand awareness. And mm -hmm. one of the examples I give is Liquid Death, which if not familiar. It's a cool-looking can of water. It's still water in a can. Not a new idea. Yeah. But they're not selling water. What they're selling is not beer. It's just right. a beer alternative. That just water that looks cool, looks like you're drinking beer, you go to clubs, they sell you liquid death now. I was at a music concert, all they sold was liquid death. <laughs> but they're selling not water, right? And that's it. And it's like, Century is not selling air monitoring. We're selling a philosophy in how we think about open source sustainability. Or we're selling a philosophy in how we think about privacy or yeah. product quality. You know, all these other things. And I think that is, that is not normal in tech for sure. But you see it a lot in consumer markets and things like that. And, and so... That's the other part, I think, of open source that really matters for us, is it is a brand that we are really focused on. Yeah, and I think to this point of it being a distribution strategy or, or brand marketing, it does feel like it's not the sort of thing that you can, you know, act on later in the company lifecycle. It, it really does feel like it has to be in the DNA of the company. Do you think that's true? Like, do you, do you think it's, it presumably would have been very hard for you to espouse this philosophy years after Century started? And, and maybe a related question, like, do you think this is why there aren't more open source, successful, large scale products? Just the, the founder DNA or the product DNA isn't there from the beginning? Yeah. So I think almost everything in the company has to be top down in the sense of it has to be believed in at the top and enforced from the top. It might not come from the top, but for right. example, if it's like a bunch of engineers like open source and everybody in the executive team is like, whatever, we don't really understand or care about it. It's yeah. not going to survive as a bit, you know, as a, as a. So that, that matters. I think the reason it's less common is because it's very hard and it does have to be in your DNA. And it's not, it's, it, there's a bunch of these like attributes, right? Like mm -hmm. Century is not successful because we're open source. Century might be, might be more successful because we were open source, but it's right. not successful because of that. And, and I think these, this is where the confusion comes in a lot. And so I think there's that aspect, but then there's a lot of this like fear and challenging of like, well, What's the value of open source? And we are open source just because like my entire career, I've just shipped open source software. I just didn't care, right? I'm like, seems fine, you know, no, no problems here. But I do talk to a lot of people that like kind of go into open source and they don't, they maybe, maybe don't have a strong belief around why or what it is. They think it's probably useful to do, which is fine. You know, that's not a bad thing. But, but I think especially trying to go that direction after the fact, you can, don't get me wrong, you totally can. 
Because Century, for example, we're, we have a bunch of this privacy stuff going on that we're going to talk about. We were not that early days. We're like, no, just give us all your data and trust us. We'll protect it. You know, it's, it's right. useful if we have this data. Now we're like, no, we're actually going to give you a ton of controls and be like agro pro privacy because we think like this is important now and it's changing. So I think you can change first off. I think you've got to be thoughtful about what it is and what your risks are and when it does or doesn't matter, right? And so Century yeah. was open source until one company decided they wanted to resell Century, one company mm. that had never contributed to Century at all. And I'm like, this is annoying. We're, like, yeah. Why would we tolerate this kind of thing? And we were the IP holders, so it didn't matter. Now, we could have been open source and that could have been fine. I don't know. Yeah. But we chose yeah. to switch to this other licensing strategy where it's like, well, now we're protected. We can still monetize Century. But I, I think there's this interesting aspect where there's not been a company that's gotten so big and stay true free open source and monetized ex extraordinarily well. Like there's no billion dollar revenue companies that are like exclusively open source, free open source software. And I think yeah. the free part is important because what I mean by free is not free software foundation. I mean free as in almost no strings attached in the sense of mm -hmm. like not GPL. I mean free yeah. as in permissive free because GPL effectively has constraints that are attached to it. And one way some of these companies monetize is by scaring other companies from using their open source by putting these licenses that are really like high risk for certain organizations, right? And so yeah. I want to believe somebody will do it at some point. They'll take that leap and it will work. We were not going to be the ones that quite do it because it was just frustrating for us. But I think it's doable. I, I don't think it's a limitation anymore. And, and I guess maybe last point on this open source topic, what, what do you think folks have to take away from you know, things like Kafka or, or tools where cloud providers go and effectively take the software and resell it in a way that, you know, presumably takes a decent chunk out of the, the business of the company that, that created the software. Yeah. So one thing I, I was talking to a couple friends the other day who are considering open sourcing their core service. And they're like, mm -hmm. well, what kind of license do we use? Do we use the new thing Century released recently? Do we use uh, business source license? Open core, blah, blah. there's all these decisions, right? And I told them, I'm like, the decision has to be inherently connected to how you're going to monetize because open source is part of the packaging model. It's part of the distribution model. It's the same way, like, which features you get for 20 bucks are part of your packaging model. That's how you monetize everything. And so if it doesn't make sense, if it's not attached to that, it's not yeah. going to be successful. And so, you know, think about Kafka. If the only way to monetize Kafka is through cloud hosting and the whole goal of Kafka is to make it really easy to run, well, yeah. I mean, newsflash, anybody that can sell it is going to win. You know, like whoever sells it best wins because right. there's nothing there. Like the packaging is just, let's make it dumb, easy to run. Yeah. But if the, if the whole thing with Kafka is say like, you need all these tools on top or something else, right? Okay, maybe it's fine all of a sudden. And it doesn't mean you'll have exclusive rights or anything. And that might be mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's this interesting thing that we've not seen enough data and you got to take some risks to see of like, well, take Sentry, for example, just because it's, you can't really compete with us. If it was truly free open source, super easy to run and commercialize, so there could be century alternatives in SaaS, yeah. would that harm our business or would it broaden the market for our business? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to say, you know, because like you have MongoDB and Elastic who have these same kind of things with like AWS and whatnot, and they're still very successful companies. And so it's really right. hard to say that it hurt them, them at all. And to be fair, they've also always had proprietary components that they sort of shipped alongside things. Maybe in yeah. their case, those things were just not good enough. The, like yeah. they had one product, which was the infrastructure component that had great product market fit. And then they had a bunch of products that never achieved product market fit. And that's why they couldn't monetize as well as they wanted. There's something along those lines, you know? 
Yeah. And it also feels like this weird tension of you open source your core technology and then you kind of actively work against that by trying to create closed source adjacencies that only you offer that someone else doesn't offer. It feels like uh, it feels that tension with the original spirit of having open source the thing in the mm-hmm. first place. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, one, one point I want to make on that is yeah. I think this is one of the most challenging pieces and it's why Century is so, we have so high conviction around our model of like protect ourselves to sell the SaaS service to commercialize everything because we do not want to cripple the software to distribute it. Right. Oh. And we're not a great case study. We're not an infrastructure. We're just a product that we sell that's complicated to run. But it is like that business model. I think a lot, peop- a lot of people would desire to just be like, I just want to commercialize it via cloud services, but so do some of the biggest companies in the world. And so that's sort of like where we're at with the, the tug of war, you know? Yeah. Well, I want to get back a little bit to the, the technical side of things. So Sentry obviously has to be reliable, has to ingest the data, and it also has to be really easy to, to set up with as little configurability as possible across a ton of different environments. How do you manage that product service area? Like I'm assuming, you know, internally you can't possibly use every Sentry SDK, you can't test every framework. But on the other hand, you know, with that many companies and developers using Sentry, you're going to get bug reports across every framework and things that can go wrong will go wrong. That seems like a pretty challenging technical problem at scale. So, or maybe it's also an organizational staffing problem. How do you think about that? I'm going to use, I stole this from somebody else the other day. It's open source with a healthy, healthy dose of capitalism. And what I mean <laughs> okay. by that is century for a, like, as long as it's had money has paid contractors to help us maintain those S- our SDKs. And because it is a staffing problem, it's just a sheer breadth of problems to solve and expertise. And those people we often pay, we're just contributors. We're like, hey, this is great. You want to keep contributing and just have money also? which I would encourage more people to do. It's a phenomenal model if it works, but it is a really hard challenge. And I'll tell you, it gets harder and harder because once upon a time, it's like, well, Django and Rails and Laravel. And they're, they're kind of, they're big targets that are like, a lot of people use one thing, you solve it once, you tweak it a little bit every so often, maintain it, and you're fine. That's become more and more problematic in recent years as the, like the change in user interfaces with the, like basically with the JavaScript movement. You, know? you have some of this on mobile too, where there's a lot of change in the, how we develop mobile apps and everybody wants like a new language or a new framework all the time. Right. And that shouldn't be such a problem. But the problem is most of these frameworks, well, one, sometimes they're, they're built by people who have not really run like production operations in software. And so they're not always designed with, <laughs> we need telemetry in mind, you know? So that's one challenge. I think the other challenge is even when they are run by these people, they're so complicated sometimes that, and again, the same problem, they've not really thought about hey, like people actually need to be able to diagnose all these problems in production. And that, that list gets endless, you know? And right. you see that a lot with the JavaScript frameworks these days where they've gotten so complicated to debug and the frameworks themselves, because there's so many moving parts and it's not like they often don't control the whole thing. It's very hard for them to even simplify that. And so in an ideal world, new framework comes out, it's built in some core hooks, you know? Yeah. And we just, we shim those hooks, right? And then for us, it should primarily be, do we support that language really mm-hmm. well? And then do we support the framework by some hooks? But what I'll tell you in, in practice, it is we spend lots and lots of engineering hours supporting every framework under the sun. And yeah. It's a never ending moving target that is very, very hard to do. I don't know what our total staffing is behind it, but I do think if you include, we have SDKs, right? Which again, we, we either contract or full-time engineering staff pretty much any SDK that's run and it's usually mm. more than one headcount per. Mm. 
Bobo, for example, I think we have nine people on, which is insane well, to me. But so that that's one. And I think the other side you have to understand is it's not just like an SDK. There's all these like language sort of runtime specific challenges. So right. You think about like, for me, SDK is like, it's Next.js or it's Django. Well, yeah. you've got AWS Lambda serverless shenanigans, right? Yeah. And then you've got yeah. everybody else's flavor of serverless and they all work differently and they're all their own frameworks on top of everybody else's frameworks. And it's like, I don't know. I, I think this problem is unsolvable in its current shape and I don't know <laughs> what we're going to do about it in all honesty. Like yeah. a lot of people want to believe like open telemetry and stuff's the solution. I will, I will tell you it's, it's just not because yeah. it's just not, it doesn't solve it well enough in so many scenarios, especially in the front end where the problem is the biggest. And open telemetry is like ignore the logs and the metrics, but the tracing component, that's good. But it's only one little component of everything we need to do. And like, like Century's not going to like create some open errors spec, let alone yeah. cater to open telemetry trying to do it. Because one, it's big company process shenanigans. Two, we are so invested in our entire, you know, thing, we're not going to spend tens of millions of dollars just to make it easy for more copycats to show up, you know? And so there's yeah. all these challenges, you know, and I, I, I just don't know what the solution is going to be, but I will tell you forever, it's always just like, we have to invest in it. We have to be really good at it. And yeah. when we're not, we have to recognize it and, and, and double down on that investment. You know? But, but that is interesting because it sounds like, yeah, one shape of solution to that problem, which may or may not work is try to get an RFC out there, try to make these frameworks move in some direction rather than you having to staff every incremental framework that comes out. And it sounds like you're saying that's probably not the right solution because it, yeah, in some sense, lowers the barriers to entry to the market, but also maybe it's just unrealistic for that to actually happen. Yeah, I think it's unrealistic because what often happens with standard bodies is they develop a standard and it's fast right away because there's no adoption. Then there's adoption and it stops. And even when there's adoption, it's not universal adoption. There's still yeah. people that are like, I don't like this. I'm going to do it my way. And so yeah. even though I think open telemetry for the tracing specific stuff, so open tracing back in the day, there's a lot of great ideas in there because we should not have to instrument a bunch of third-party libraries over and over and over and over. The adoption, this is like a many years old project at this point, and it's still got such minuscule adoption in the industry that I'm like, if that's the outcome, it's like, we're definitely not wasting time on trying to create a standard, you know? And so yeah. I don't know what the solution is, but one interesting analogy to that problem is recently we released something called Spotlight at Century, which is actually unrelated to Century, but all we did was we basically took our SDKs and we leveraged the data collection to build like a debug bar locally, mm -hmm. like a better debugger mm -hmm. in, in development environments. And we did have to change the SDKs. Fortunately, we control them, so it's easy. Yeah. But we were actually able to take something we had already built and leverage it into something that's entirely different that just needed similar kinds of data, you know? Yeah. So there's this interesting concept in there, even though it's not like an open standard and we're certainly not going to change our SDKs to help a competitor. <laughs> We were actually able to expand the, the, the market capabilities using what is our internal standard, you know? And so, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll just keep funding all this until the end of time and, and, and the number of engineers on SDKs will be like 500 in five <laughs> years, I don't know. Yeah. But I, I like to believe some, it's becoming more of a mature industry. And I think there's these curves where it kind of expands in terms of like complexity and ideas and that contracts like as, as things start to mature. We haven't seen a contract yet, unfortunately, in like the job yeah. world, especially. Yeah, yeah. But I'd like to believe we're getting more mature about the technology these days. And there's a lot more people with um, a lot more depth of experience building some of those yeah. projects versus, oh, I just live in the PHP ecosystem and all I do is build PHP. So I don't know what happens over here. Got a lot yeah. more breath in the industry now. Yeah. Maybe talking about a, I guess, relatively significantly more immature problem. I've noticed that you all have also started to build some AI features into Sentry, 
but but in a very like sentry like way where in some sense it's very transparent that these things are guesses that you're not trying to pin down the problem but you're trying to directionally suggest what might be the issue we can talk about the future but what i'm wondering about is more philosophically do you think that's here to stay do you think that Right now, it's kind of a toe dip into AI just to see if it lands with developers and you're really going to solidly focus headcount and technical investment into actual proven problems with maybe an opinionated stance rather than let's just do AI because AI is the thing. Yeah. I think a lot of people are doing AI because AI is the thing. And I will tell you, I I personally have very little confidence. A lot of the spaces make sense for it. I think there are some interesting things that the, the language models can work on today. And I'm not an expert by any means, but I have, I've been playing with them. Then there are things they are just absolutely horrendous at. And <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a believer of like, oh, shiny new technology, let's force its way into something. Yeah. You know? And that feels like what's happening in a lot of ways versus like, oh, obviously this is powerful here. And I think it's fair that they don't know and they're testing it, but every company in the world is like, look at our AI chatbot then. I'm like, I don't exactly AI chatbot, you know? And so ours is kind of like, we actually just spun up a dedicated ML AI investment, but it's not a dedicated LLM chat GPT investment. Mm-hmm. We are interested to see what makes sense there, but we're, we're thoughtful about it from a point of view where we're realistic and we are not just going to build something that anybody else can build. Oh. Frankly, a smaller company is going to be better at building something quickly than us. So it's like, well, what could we uniquely do that others can't? And that's like, well, what can we uniquely do with the amount of interesting telemetry you have and things like that? And so a lot of the near-term investment for us is kind of like, well, it's not so much that the LLM tech is interesting. It's that we should run more experiments. We are at a scale yeah. where the money is irrelevant to us, the staff, like a small team, you know? Yeah. And if something ends up being very valuable, well, that the, the ROI is really, really large. And so I think we'll see, as an example, CodeCub, which is a company we acquired a while back, kind mm-hmm. of does, I, I like to think of it as like century pre-production. And so can we hmm. stop bugs from happening? Right. Even though it's mostly focused on test coverage right now, but they actually have, it's like not, not documented or announced, but there's something we built internally that is not good at all yet. Maybe it will, but it's just a code review, buddy. And I'm like, can somebody just do this and have it evaluate the code and tell me what's broken? (laughs) Because again, the the language models are not perfect, but I have seen in my own code where I've given it a complex function and it has identified something that I could not identify myself. Hmm. And if it can do that, can it make code review more efficient or something? Now that's not a uniquely us problem, of course, but I'm like, there are areas where it does seem interesting, I guess. But I yeah. think a lot of the technology, the language models are either too expensive or they're just not capable enough yet to really yeah. pull something off that's great. But, but it sounds like basically they've reduced the barrier to entry enough where a company like Sentry, it makes sense to run more experiments involving them, even if it doesn't mean releasing full-fledged features that, that use them just yet. Yeah, though I will say the, the complexity for Sentry is we're not going to funnel data to open AI. And so we have to run models behind our firewall and like GP, GCP. Mm. And we, just, we just have this intense policy around data processors. And so we do have like an open AI feature, but it's opt-in for this one single feature. Meaning right. we couldn't all of a sudden make like a network wide. So we're figuring out some of that. But the technology I think is exciting. But just like every new piece of technology, it's a little bit overhyped, I think. And it's like, yeah. you saw this with Bitcoin and shit, even though that was more like, how do we launder money? It was like, yeah. oh, can we apply a, like a distributed hash blockchain to every problem in the world where most of the time it makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So maybe last question I'll ask is uh, less on the technical side, but I, I'm curious about this. Sentry's brand is very unique. And as you were saying, a lot of these things, I imagine, do come top down. But 
you know, you all have billboards around Sentry can't fix this with this like phone falling on you. Uh, the text on the marketing site on the in the product is really silly. What's what's driving that? Is that just like again your ethos and and like kind of leadership ethos, or do you think it's it's something to do with you know people who use Sentry are presumably stressed at times, right? And and is there something around the actual product surface? This is us just a strong belief in brand marketing. So part of our brand is be authentic, you know, and it's okay to be tongue in cheek. There's a, there's a yeah. balance there, of course. It's not our brand is not talk shit. My brand is yeah. talk shit, there, but our <laughs> company brand is not. It's just like let's tell it how it is. So uh, my favorite analogy here, or my favorite example of this rather, is in our in, in Century's core, we have a single page applications. It's, it's very large these days. And when we built it, which it must be 2015, a React Spa, we put it in a loading indicator. We thought was funny. It looks cool, and it's just like please wait while we load an obnoxious amount of JavaScript. Back yeah. in the day, you never saw it. Now you see it all the time, and it's very true. It, it actually wasn't that true back in the day. It still kind of felt like, and that's phenomenal. Like people love it. It's like tongue in cheek. It's just us like sort of like demeaning ourselves, you know, but we actually have brand voice policies internally that are all yeah. centered around this. And so I think it did come from the early team, but I think great ideas are not just coming from a, a person or a set of people. They are things that people value and then latch onto. And so that one's like held pretty well for us. And so like, you know, I mean, I'm partially responsible for the billboard campaign and, and my voice is very strong, <laughs> but other people took it and ran with it and then made it better or something. Cause they took the idea was like, Century can't fix this. First off, Century doesn't fix anything. Yeah. <laughs> and secondly, the, the things that would depict have nothing to do with anything Century does. So like the first one or the main one was, it was a minotaur, like the magical creature mm -hmm. playing Beat Saber and knocking over some pots. And it's like, what the, what even is that? You know, yeah, that's the yeah. whole point. It's like, it's like a billboard. It's like, you're looking at it and you're like, what is that? And I'm like, what the hell is Sentry? And that, that's yeah. kind of the thesis behind it. But a lot of it's just like, yeah, it's like, there's a lot of stiff corporate marketing. There's no reason to do it. Yeah, it's just mm -hmm. a belief we have, you know? Awesome. Well, here's to more billboards in, in the coming year. And thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks again for having me. This was fun. Awesome. <laughs>